This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, AOPA wraps up the fly-in season. And a pilot goes for a 9-1-1 flying record. Also, some low, fast, and loud flying out in Reno. But a couple of key crashes to talk about this time. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, really special person, very cool person. She's got the life that we all dream of, I think, all pilots. This is Leanne Fowley. She's a bush pilot up in Alaska. The Denali Raven. I saw her movie, Ian, over at the Smithsonian a while back, and she's a fascinating woman and just really encompasses all there is for Alaska bush flying. All right, so we'll get to that. But first, Wrapping up the flying season, we just uh, got done with Tullahoma, AOPA's third flying of the year, and uh, of course, by all measures, a big success and a great location. Tullahoma is, in fact, an aviator's delight, Ian, and let me tell you, there were a lot of people. There was a hot show, and by hot, I mean it was temperature-wise, it was very hot. (laughs) It was in the south, and it was still in, in September, but it was in the 90s, man. Wow, geez. Yeah, so you mentioned a lot a lot of attendees, almost uh, 9,500 people to this one. That's right, 9,425. But listen to this, 572 aircraft were handled on the ground there and by the volunteer ATC folks. That is an incredible number of, of people. I, I find that to be a well-attended event with a lot of aircraft, and there were a lot of people camping, which I did too. Yeah, so how did that go? Is this the first time you've camped at a fly-in? Ian, it is the first time I camped at a fly-in, and I will say that there's a yin and the yang to all of this stuff. I really like being in the thick of it. You know, I really like being in the thick of it. That was a lot of fun, and we hung out with some really fun people, but it was blazedly hot down there, and I'm used to it. I'm from the South. I was used to it, but it gave us a great perspective on uh, being at the fly-in. I kind of went on my own schedule. I enjoyed a lot of the... um, a lot of the seminars and workshops that a lot of people would do, instead of me feeling like I had to cover them, I went as an attendee, and I learned so much. It was great. Who did uh, who did you sit in on? 
Well, I sat in on, uh, well, I sat in on several, really. I sat in on Catherine Cavagnero's seminar, and that was one of the paid seminars. Yeah. Now, mind you, but that was really good. And uh, I learned a little bit more about um, getting the maximum performance out of your aircraft, but also doing it in a safe way. You know, she's a mathematician. Yeah, and right. so and so Catherine and also Catherine is a spin champion. I, I should also mention folks probably heard us talk about her before, but she has some great tips on really calculating your runway distances, landing distances, takeoff distances, things like that. Really kind of drill down deep on that. I learned a lot. Very cool. Another good seminar that I went to was my buddy Mike Jesh with the Cessna Pilot Society. And he was talking about some of the four flight tips and golly, I used ForeFlight, and there was so much that I learned from that seminar. It was great. It was great to just be sitting down and listening and taking notes just for my own self and really going to school on that. I really found that to be fascinating. That's that's great. You know, I'm always, I guess I shouldn't be at this point, but always a little surprised by the the attendance of these ForeFlight seminars. But it, it just goes to show you, I guess, people are, you still have tons of people who are new to the iPad, who are trying to learn how to turn the thing on and upload the app and all that. And then you got people like you who have been using it for a couple of years and, you know, you're kind of an intermediate user. And then you got, you know, the super users who are just looking for that one thing and just want to sit and talk about it and hear about it. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. Those are good seminars. Agreed. A couple other things that I thought were great, uh, just to be a spectator at this, Ian, the, the stall demonstrations, uh, Short takeoff and landing demos, that just garnered a huge crowd for even for the practice session that was on Thursday night. Oh, wow. And, uh, and of course, you know, AOPA's own uh, Mark Baker flew the Piper Super Cup on floats, and he had a great time. And uh, I got a little side story to tell you about that. I ferried that airplane down there. Oh, yeah. How did it go? Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Josh Cochran and I from ALTW flew it down there. Now, it took a pretty good long ways uh, to get down there. It took a long time. That's a so, long trip, uh, yeah. Yeah, we had a pretty big headwind leaving out of Maryland, uh, but really nice weather. We met some great folks on the way in Lonesome Pine Airport down in Virginia. And when we landed, Jimmy Gist, I talked to him. He's our stall wrangler. I talked to him before I left. And so he told me, he said, Dave T., you know, you really need to land on the grass stall runway when you come down. We'll be looking for you. So I was thinking, okay, I'm in, you know, I'm in Mark Baker's personal airplane that he loves dearly, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it's pretty loaded up with me and Josh Cochran. But I've said, you know, Dave T, you're up to it yourself. You can do it. I figured I could just make a smooth landing, just greasing on. I'll be darned, and I really impressed myself when I landed that airplane. <laughs> That's people awesome. Came, people came walking up and said, "Man, you did a great job landing on that stall strip," and it was a lot of fun. I totally see what Mark what Mark likes about it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> wow, and the crowd loves it. The crowd loves that kind of thing. Oh yeah. So. Can't beat a yellow cub, no question. Yeah. Other neat things, too. I you know, need to mention Lee Louderback and the P-51 Mustang put on a wonderful show. And, uh, you know, just meeting people. I, I really like the camping out part of it for me. I really like meeting the people that I know in the aviation industry and renewing old friendships. It's, that's the best part of it to me. Yeah. It's an excuse to go flying, really, right? So the seminars and everything else are just kind of gravy. It's really you get to go hang out with friends and meet new people and got some camping in. So that's great. It's a good weekend. Very good. So somebody that something that was going on right around then and uh, something that you were dogging is this really fascinating story about this guy who I don't know why he wanted to do this. I admire his dedication. He uh, <laughs> he's a better man than I. Uh, his plan was to recognize 9-11 with an attempt to fly. So there are 110 stories in the world trade, right? So he was going to fly at a, to 110 airports in 24 hours. That's right. How did he do? 
Well, Daniel Moore out of, uh, I'll mispronounce it, but it's Elizabethton, Tennessee, to the best of my knowledge. He's a flight instructor. He's also an ATP, and he's also an AEP mechanic. Um, he's got a lot of good credentials. So he wanted to fly to 110 airports on September 11th to honor the victims of the 9-1-1 tragedies in 2001, Ian. So he mapped out 113 airports so he could have a few extras. And he was going to start at 5 a.m. Now, he started uh, right around 5 a.m. He did. He had a a Bonanza A36, which we know and love. It's a wonderful airplane. Mm -hmm. He was going to plan for three or four fuel stops along the way. And so I followed Daniel. I mean, he was doing, he was kind of had satellite tracking going. So I followed him throughout the day. And there were a lot of people pulling for him on social media. Yeah, yeah. So the previous record, I guess, he was also going for a record. The previous record was 87 airports in a 24-hour period. That's right. And the 87 airports were bagged by a couple of British pilots back in 2017. They were in a Cessna 172 Skyhawk. Hmm. So how did he do? Well, the last we heard when we checked in with Daniel, um, and it was pretty late on September 11th, and I was looking on Facebook, he bagged at least 90 airports. And this was like 16 hours of flying, Ian. I mean, it's a lot of heavy flying, and you know, and early in the morning at night, too. And so I think that um, at, at a certain point, he called it quits for safety reasons. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, you know, I think I would have stopped at about 20 and said, that's it, I'm done. That's good. I think I would have stopped at two. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's when you put it away and have a burger and a beer, right? It's like, what's That's the point That's exactly of right, it, man. <laughs> That's what saying. But so he had to make a full stop landing at each airport and snap a picture to kind of prove he was there. Oh, and he wow. had some folks on the ground to help verify. So he was trying to beat that 87 airport record, and we think he did. Now, it's going to take a couple of weeks to verify that. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we expect to hear a little bit more from Daniel Moore. And he was a great guy. I met him at EIA AirVenture this year. Okay. He was a really neat guy and just has a heart of gold. Yeah, that's great. So I, there's a picture on his Facebook page. It's a 110 airports. So if you go on Facebook and search 110 airports, you'll find it. It's a great picture. It's, somebody took it. It looks like it's night. You know, it's black and white. And he's getting this hug from somebody, and he looks wasted i mean he just <laughs> looks like he's like you he can barely stand up so and it said after 19 hours of flying so that that is very impressive very impressive stuff so hey moving on reno uh we always like to go over the results a safe successful year this year there was a couple of close calls i know just uh tracking things but overall a good year and uh they just wrapped up and and uh some new champions i think this year that's right, Ian. You know, one thing that we are going to talk about in a couple of minutes from now is that they had a new class. They had the short takeoff and landing demonstration, and that's going to be a new class in the future. But we had several people that we haven't seen at the top of the podium before, and a, a couple of names that we will remember or recognize. So you want to go ahead and start us off with, with the Unlimited class? Yeah, the big boys. Let's start with the big boys, the one everybody loves. Uh, unlimited class, uh, Dennis Sanders flying Dreadnought. One average speed, 403.274 miles an hour. In the jet class, Pete Zacagnino, I'm going to go with that, flying just lucky. And uh, he had an average speed of 495.106 miles per hour, about five times the speed of the Piper Super Cub I flew. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, sport class results, Andrew Finley, we know him. Successful guy out there at Reno, 390.744 miles per hour in one moment. And in the T class, Chris Rushing flew Baron's Revenge to an average speed of 235.081 miles per hour. Yep, Formula Ones. That was Lowell Slater in Fred Knott. 
for at uh, 243.442 miles an hour. In the biplane class results, Andrew Bueller flying Phantom completed the course at an average speed of 227.755 miles per hour. Yeah, so it was a it was a good week. You know, the Thunderbirds were there, which is always very cool. And you mentioned, you know, they they had this uh, stole contest, which obviously has been getting. You know, it went. It's stole is so interesting because it went from this thing in in Valdez that happened kind of once a year that people just sort of talked about and local guys to it's become this really national and who knows worldwide sort of phenomenon. I think because of social media, you know, people can see themselves kind of doing this. They see their friends doing it, and one of the biggest are the Pades, and especially flying Draco, and unfortunately some sad news coming out of Reno. That's right, Ian. We're sad to report. Now, first of all, let's get everyone on the right page. Mike Pady is okay, and we've heard a lot about him and seen a lot about him over the past couple of years since he unveiled uh, the Draco, that Wilga airplane that's turboprop-powered um, over in 2018. But he did have a takeoff accident, and it looked pretty severe. What was different about it for a lot of folks is that it was captured on video on social media, and it was making the rounds pretty early in the day, and there was a lot of concern. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, I think, a fascinating thing is that you know now when there's an accident, one of the first things people do is turn on their cameras, and that can be good or bad. You know, In his case, he stood out there and said, hey, totally my fault. The wind was way too strong, shouldn't have gone. I, you know, normally he would, you know, if he's flying in the backcountry somewhere, it's like he's just going to point into the wind. So it doesn't matter, but um, can't really do that at a, at a big airport like Reno. So he says he, he just blew it, just a dumb decision. And unfortunately, they totaled the airplane as a result. Yeah. And so adding on to that a little bit, Ian, I did appreciate the fact that, um, that Mike had a minute or two to talk to me on the phone and explain it a little bit. But also, he went ahead and posted a video, uh, basically a mea culpa video, because he felt like this kind of thing could help other pilots. And so I think that there's a lot to that, Ian. I think that when you study things like this and you, you hear about folks who are very competent like he is, that this really could give the rest of us a little bit more time to think about precautions or different ways of handling this or, or basically in, on a day like that, maybe not fly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, it's funny, if you look at the pictures, uh, which I, I think you should go and check out, you know, they say it's totaled. I mean, people have been saying, well, that's the last we'll ever see Draco fly. I wouldn't be surprised if he rebuilds it. You know, I mean, you look at the wings, they're relatively intact, you know. He'll have to get into it and see what kind of structural damage it had and whether it's worth it or not, or whether they just start over. But yeah, obviously very happy everybody's okay there and scary moment for everybody, no doubt. But uh, it, it, it it's sort of a, a you know... I'm ambivalent a little bit about the video thing because I, I agree with you. It's like on one hand, you can stand out there and you can say, I did this. It was me. I can learn from this. You can learn from this. That's all very positive. On the other hand, any time that you put yourself out there on videos leading up to this kind of stuff, you know, you put your exploits out there and your, you know, all your information and your, you know, what they're doing in the backcountry and everything else. It's like you really open yourself up to criticism and to scrutiny that maybe, you know, maybe it's not for everybody. Everybody could be a backseat driver or a Monday morning quarterback, Ian. If you have not been in an aircraft accident, and I have, I can tell you that it's a whole different thing when, it, when you're talking about yourself and analyzing your own actions. The other thing that was interesting about this, I know when I was an aircraft owner, I'm not currently an aircraft owner now, but I know that I did read my insurance documents, and we've talked about this before on the podcast. There was information here that specifically said not to talk to the media or not to, uh, or you know, basically not to mention any kind of fault. And so I'm kind of wondering a little bit about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. I, I don't know what his insurance situation is, but yeah, that is, that is interesting and what the implications for that could be. I guess there was another uh, air- aircraft landing incident that we should talk about too. Yeah. Another high profile one. Now this one wasn't at Reno, but was high profile and that's Patty Wagstaff. Maybe you've heard about this one had a problem. She's saying a mechanical problem with her Bonanza on landing in St. Augustine and it flipped. Yeah, she was taxiing when the aircraft veered off into the grass and then it it rolled over. That was on September 11th, so Mm -hmm. interesting omen on that day. She had a passenger with her as well. They were unhurt. We're glad to hear that. Now, Patty did not, you know, jump out of the airplane and start videotaping what happened, and so that's a a little bit of a a generational thing, I think, between these two high-profile pilots. Yeah, yeah, that's right, which is so interesting because, you know, as an aerobatic pilot, it's like you're out there, and so you would think that maybe you would be sort of prone to be like, to kind of get ahead of it and jump out and say, hey, uh, this happened, it was mechanical, you know, um, this is maybe what I would have done differently or something like that, but no, she took the, like you say, the exact opposite approach, which was why sort of self-implicate here, you know, move on and, and uh, get the airplane fixed and, you know, not really talk about it publicly, but apparently kind of coming around and, and it's kind of reaching out to folks. And so, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what she has to say about it when she talks publicly. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Ian. And, you know, things do happen. Mechanical problems do occur. And that, I'm sure, had something to do with it. And also, going back to Mike Patey's incident, you know, the wind was not in a, in a great situation before he decided to to take off. But also, to his defense, I looked at the METARs, and it really picked up between the time that he was getting ready to taxi on out there to, to when, actually, he was starting the takeoff roll. Interesting. Well, that could happen to me or you as we're doing a regular takeoff. I mean, Absolutely. Both of, both of these pilots had... Real common things that, that you know apparently occurred that would not be uncommon to happen to you or I or anyone else that flies an airplane. Yeah, and actually, not not to beat this, but you you make a really good point, which is that when somebody says, "Oh, my personal minimums on wind are seven knots," you know, and it's like I don't really need to be great at crosswinds because I never fly in anything strong. Well. You might not intend to, but that doesn't mean that the conditions aren't going to change as they may have here. Instantaneously changed. Yeah, exactly. So you got to be sharp at all times because you never know what's going to happen. So Good point, Ian. Hey, uh, one more accident we want to talk about, unfortunately. Now, this one is the, you may remember this one, the 2018 Piper Arrow dual fatal out of uh, Florida. This was the Embry-Riddle airplane with the DPE on board, commercial check ride. The report just came out about this, and I there is some just fascinating stuff in here. I think about aging airplanes, the role of you know airplanes in in flight training, and what that means for their you know their future and their longevity, and uh, and just you know kind of what role the NTSB has in, in the FAA and everything else. So really interesting questions coming out of this. Well, metal fatigue was determined to be the causing factor for that accident, Ian, and that is not a huge surprise to a lot of us. So that's what we suspected, but we're glad that the investigation uh, was very thorough. It does have a lot of implications for the training fleet, as you mentioned, and also for potential aircraft buyers in the used market Yeah, that might be looking at an Arrow or another Piper low-wing model of that vintage. Yeah. In fact, you know, I remember when the accident happened, I thought, oh, well, it's at, uh, you know, Riddle. This is going to have a lot of cycles, you know, lots of hours. They said it was an arrow. I, you know what? I just sort of assumed it was a 70s vintage arrow, and this thing had, you know, whatever, 10,000 hours on it. This airplane was built in 07. 
Yeah, pretty new. It really was to have, you know, metal fatigue. Now it had, I will say, it did have a lot of hours on it. It had 7,600 hours on it. Yeah, yeah, which is a lot in a short time. And you would expect a, you know, a place like Riddle for that to happen. But, you know, they said they even looked into stuff like, well, could there have been, you know, like weather damage that was undetected or something like that? I think, you know, my my sort of armchair quarterbacking here is that probably there was some sort of overstress at some point in its past that just wasn't reported or not seen on an inspection. And in fact, the NTSB said that one of the one of the implications here, one of the sort of causal factors is they couldn't inspect the part that was that ultimately broke. Well, that would cause an invest a hindrance to an investigation for sure. Um, one thing that stood out for for me, Ian, is that this airplane, like a lot of retractable aircraft, including the Mooney that I owned and had at a flight school, this airplane was used for complex operations only, and at Embry-Riddle, it accounted for about one-third of their commercial flight training. Now, that's a lot of stress for one airplane. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It is. So as a result of this, you know, the FAA had proposed an AD on a broad range of PA-28s, and AOPA said, no, 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 hold, put on the brakes. Let's at least wait to find out what happened. And, you know, maybe we can narrow that scope to a range of PA-28s that actually, you know, would be impacted here. So we're going to have to wait and see what happens there. But I think, you know, this is something that especially, you know, like I said, it's a relatively newer airplane, and it is, uh, or it was. But, yeah, definitely some implications here for aging aircraft and and metal fatigue, like you say. And as you meant, or you're getting ready to mention that, AOPA did urge the FAA to delay implementing any kind of AD until after this report came out. And then uh, after the report came out, basically uh, the NTSB echoed AOPA's position, which expressed concern to the, to the FAA about the risk of ordering these invasive inspections. And that could uh, present other problems. Like I had an air coop and the corrosion was an issue with air coop wing spars. And there was a real toss up, Ian, on whether you should do a, some kind of an invasive inspection or not. So yep. it's best sometimes it's best not to disturb these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, hey, let's move on. Let's get to our guest, Leanne Fowley, a super cool bush pilot from Alaska. Like I said, something we all kind of dream about. And she's going to talk a little bit about that and, and what it took to get there and what it's like on a day to day basis. So you were recently the subject of a story and video that Yeti produced. How did, how did they come across you? How did they get to know you and approach you to kind of feature you and the flying that you do in Alaska? So in my career previous to being a pilot, I worked as a guide on uh, Denali, which of course is North America's highest peak, um, for almost a decade. And during that time, I made a great many friends, including uh, uh, mountaineering luminaries uh, named Renan Ozturk and Freddie Wilkinson. And these guys work for Camp 4 Collective, who does a lot of production for, say, the North Face and other outdoor companies. And they do um, stories for Yeti as well. And um, they approached me a couple of years ago. So I've known these guys for a long time. And uh, they approached me a couple, about a season ago, and asked me if I wanted to be part of this Yeti project. And I thought that sounded really nice. Um, Usually most of their work is about bachelor climbers doing, you know, pushing the extremes in faraway mountain ranges. But I think they're really looking for a story that 
um, a little bit different about the balance that a lot of us struggle with between finding a job that we really love, which for me now is being an aviator, and uh, family and passion. Neat. And how do you do that balance? So you're a wife, a mom, a professional pilot. How do you juggle all of that? I just have to be a really good time manager and make sure you take time to feed your own passions. Uh, and your passions, in addition to aviation? Art, of course, and uh, still going out exploring and climbing and um, being a mother, too. And do you take your family, uh, your little girl, and you have a, another one on the way, um, and your husband, do you go flying as a family together? All the time. We are, if the weather is sunny, our tie-down is vacant the whole weekend. And uh, we're really good about getting out as a family in the airplane and going camping um, as often as the weather will permit. And uh, the family just loves it. And, you know, the roads only access a mere fraction of the state of Alaska. So um, you really have to have an airplane to see the rest of it. So an airplane up here is basically just like a great car camping vehicle for a family. So you can still have your kid and take him to just these wildly remote places as well. It's really great. Oh, it's fun. It sounds like you're living most people's dreams. <laughs> it's pretty lucky, yeah. Yeah, it's really nice to have uh, the airplane up here and have a family that's really into going places in the airplane. Wonderful. So what was it like working with Yeti to do the, the video and story? It was really easy and nice because they're all longtime friends of mine, and so um, flying with them was pretty relaxing, honestly. And we went up to the glacier to do a lot of the shooting. We were supposed to be there one night. We ended up getting stuck there for six nights, but we've all seen that before. Okay. So honestly, we all treated it as kind of a nice vacation to relax and catch up on sleep and still do a little bit of uh, important work for shooting good shots on the glacier. Fun. And how did you get the, they named the project Denali's Raven. Where did that come from? That's a nickname of mine that I've had for a long time because there's a lot of ravens in the Alaska range and they're kind of tricksters and um, I can make a really good raven noise so people have called me the, the raven for a long time. Oh, neat. That's fun. So has anything come about since uh, Yeti put that out there? Any fame or folks recognizing you when uh, they're going up for the hikes and, and see you as their pilot? Uh, a few, yeah, but um, I'm not really, I don't have much of a presence on social media and I don't pay attention to it as much, mostly just because I'm so busy during the summer and during the flying time, which was when the video came out, that I haven't really noticed it too much, but um, REI was doing um, kind of a campaign to get more women out in the outdoors. They called it a force of nature campaign where they would support women's nonprofits in addition to kind of uh, displaying some, you know, women athletes or um, outdoors people. And so they kind of got hold of the video. And uh, so I got to do some talks at REIs in the Pacific Northwest, which was really, really fun. It was great because a lot of moms and daughters came to the talk. And it was really great because the even little seven-year-old girls were raising their hands asking questions about flying. Oh, Yeah, it was really touching. Yeah. Speaking of, you know, women and flying, I understand that you're a third generation uh, female aviator. In yeah, your my grandma was a pilot. 
That's wonderful. Yeah, she, I have a picture of her standing on the wing of her Cherokee with her when I was about four or five years old. And then it was your, your aunt also? She was, yeah. And then, uh, of course, my father was a pilot and my grandfather. So there's a lot of folks on my father's side that were um, airplane flyers. Oh, neat. Yeah. As far as encouraging women in aviation and, and young girls to get into flying, what advice would you have for them? Well, I was pretty shocked when I found out, which was recently, that only about 6% of the world's pilots are female. Because the great thing about aviation is it's gender neutral. I mean, the airplane, the weather, the mountains, they don't even know you're a girl, you know? And we go through the same testing as the men. So, you know, I tell a lot of, you know, little girls or other women that are interested that, you know, I'm surprised that more women aren't pilots and that it's a great job and a great hobby too if you don't want to be a professional pilot. It's like driving in 3D and it's a real kick in the pants and anyone can do it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Neat. Have you done other things just in your career to inspire young girls in aviation in addition to the REI talks? You know, I'm kind of new to the whole aviation world, but um, I think just by working as a pilot in the sort of forum that we do, it provides a really good opportunity to interact with passengers, a lot of which are moms and dads of little girls and the little girls themselves. Because, you know, when we fly people around the mountains, we're not only talking to them back and forth on the headsets, we're actually spending time with them out on the glacier. And so you get to know your passengers really well. And I think it's one of the only places in aviation where passengers get to interact so closely with their pilot. And so I get to talk to a lot of these parents or grandparents and then the little girls themselves. And uh, they they love it. They, they ask a lot of questions. And then I also try and put when I can girls or females up in the co-pilot seat with me. Oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my little, my little bit of uh, encouraging uh, girls to fly is just doing it on the job, I guess. That's amazing. I'm also a member of, been a member of uh, Women in Aviation for quite a while now. Oh, okay. It seems like you take balance into everything that you do you know you're on the job and you're working but you're also encouraging you know possibly future aviators while you're doing your job i'd like to think so yeah just because we do have that ability to interact so closely with our passengers that's neat and what's one of the favorite aspects of your job or i guess explain actually a little bit um, for our viewers what it is that you do flying around denali and then kind of what your favorite part is so our air service or air taxi is um, one of several that flies into Denali National Park, which uh, there's a concession required to operate in the national park that's um, granted by the National Park Service. And so in the months of April, May, and June, we fly mountain climbers from the town of Talkeetna into the glaciers in the Alaska Range. And Denali is one of the seven summits of the world, which means it's um, one of the highest points of every continent. And there's a thing in the climbing world that's kind of a collect all seven. Mm -hmm. And so people come from all over the world to try and climb Denali Mountain. And so they have to, the only realistic way to get to base camp is by taking an aircraft from Talkeetna and landing on the glacier at base camp. Base camp's at 7,200 feet on the Gehiltna Glacier. And so there's this natural symbiosis that exists between the mountain climbers and the aviators in town. And then when climbing season trickles off in July, we get a lot of uh, flight seeing passengers from all over the world as well to just want to come see the stunning mountains that are there. 
Mm, wonderful. Yeah. Was that all the question? I can't remember. <laughs> uh, just if you had a favorite part. My favorite part of flying around this area is getting to go to what I think is the most beautiful place on the continent with an airplane. And uh, considerations for pilots. So can pilots uh, do a tour themselves in their own private aircraft? Pilots uh, definitely can do a tour themselves in their own aircraft. Um, it's um, a really good idea to check out pages in the uh, Alaska Supplement before you go. There's a lot of great information on reporting points and uh, frequencies that one should use before flying up in the mountains. And on a sunny day, it can be a very congested place and there's specific directions you have to fly through certain passes and one should be fully aware of this information before they fly their own airplane up there. But uh, anyone can go do it and I encourage them to go try. And what about technique and safety practices? Should they get some mountain flying experience before? I, I understand Denali often has its own weather pattern. What would be some of the challenges that pilots should prepare for if they want to do that? But the flying that we do is pretty high profile compared to other industries in Alaska and it's received a lot of scrutiny over the years. Mm. Um, so, and our town is attached to the road system. So it makes it a lot easier for the FAA and the FISDO safety inspectors to um, make their presence felt. And um, also, we don't really fly in that mythically bad weather that you see in, say, western or southeast Alaska, because A, we need pretty high ceilings to get into the very tall mountains we're flying in, and B, flight seeing passengers don't want to go if they can't see anything, so we're not really flying in all that bad of a weather. So that kind of takes that sort of classically Alaskan challenge away. Not to say we don't see wind and bad weather, but not like other pilots do in other areas. And then um, also we don't really feel the pressure to say, get to the village or get the mail there because we're just basically taking people out to see the mountains and then returning to our home airport after maybe landing on the glacier. And so we don't have that get there itis that you might encounter um, mm -hmm. or pressure in other scenarios. And then you can kind of turn around anytime you want to and all the directors of operations at the air taxis are really supportive of that decision, PIC decision making from the cockpit. And uh, so I tell other pilots, you know, when they say, oh, isn't it, I heard it's really dangerous to fly in Alaska and I hear it's really dangerous to fly in the big tall mountains of the Alaska range. I tell them that, well, the flying that we do is only as dangerous as we want to make it. And since we're not in the business of being dangerous, it's really that not that bad. Yeah, that's, that's a really uh, neat take on it. That's a good way to put it for pilots. Yeah, it's only as dangerous as you want to make it. <laughs> right. Um, we do have, um, you know, these are big, tall mountains, and um, it's easy to get up inside of them and maybe not have enough altitude to get over the piece of terrain you originally thought you were going to be able to get over, especially if you don't know the specific altitudes of the passes. But we have, like, th you know, three significant aces in the hole as Alaskan aviators and Alaska Range uh, aviators. And number one, we don't have any density altitude. <laughs> There's no, <laughs> a lot of times the altimeter, the AWOS report be reporting negative density altitude. So we don't have density altitude. We have long daylight hours. So um, I believe there's long periods of the summer where we don't have any civil twilight at all. So you can fly all night. And so if you have um, something you have to deal with, an aircraft on the glacier, then you have a long time to deal with it. And then we also don't really have a lot of wind. So if we had to deal with the prevailing westerlies that say Colorado pilots have to deal with on a pretty constant basis, I don't know if we'd be able to 
um, do nearly as many of the operations that we do. So we have a lot of things going for us. Okay, so flying Denali, you know, as long as you do your homework and study the Alaska chart supplement, can be really safe for pilots to do themselves. The biggest challenge I think for a pilot who's not familiar with the Alaska Range is knowing the reporting point. Um, this is really important, especially on busy sunny days, to know where you are and know where other aircraft are, because a mid-air collision is a, is a definite threat up there. There's a lot of aircraft flying around up there, and that's probably the biggest challenge. It's not the mountain flying, but dealing with the uh, other airplanes that are up there flying around. Okay, good to know. So it's not without its challenges. Yeah. Could you uh, give us a little bit of your background when you got your private pilot certificate and then when you progressed um, and started working professionally as a pilot and what kind of spurred you to make that change? I got my private pilot's license here in Talkeetna in a little uh, tailwheel plane in 2004. And uh, I held that private pilot's license for a long time while I was working as a mountain guide. And then uh, I found out I was expecting a daughter, and so I thought, you know, well, time to turn that private pilot's license into the commercial license, because I knew I always wanted to be a professional pilot, but I wanted to go out and have my, um, you know, expeditions and adventures first before I committed to that. And so that's what spurred it, and then, I cut, you know, I tried to make that happen fairly quickly, and then I got a CFI job right away, and then started flying for the air taxi a few years later. Neat. And how long have you been flying for the air taxi? Um, this will be, I've just finished my third season, so I'm still kind of one of the rookies. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> How many hours do you have so far? I have about 1,500 hours now, so um, pretty low time pilot still. Yeah. But uh, since I learned to fly in these mountains, uh, they hired me at a lower than normal time. And being a passenger on the air taxi as a mountain guide for almost a decade before flying for him really gave me a leg up against pilots that were pretty new to the Alaska Range. Oh, okay. Yeah, because you, you already yeah. knew a lot of the survival and the mountains themselves, and you were already a pilot. And... I think uh, most importantly, I knew where I was going in the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I knew all the reporting points already, and I knew my way around the mountains. Okay. Could you just tell our viewers what it's like a, a day in the life of Leanne? Usually get up, uh, if it's sunny out, then it's usually kind of a race to get to work on time. Well, sorry, let me start over. We always go to work at the same time. So our pilot meetings start at 7.45 and I have to race out to the daycare and drop my daughter off first. And then um, at the pilot meetings, we discuss you know mountain flying operations, glacier conditions, and any issues that may have arisen from say the previous day or the week. And uh, then by eight o'clock, we are given a you know the standard half hour to pre-flight our airplanes. We receive our passengers at uh, 8:30, 8:45, and then if it's a sunny day, we can fly up to five flights a day during flight skiing season. And then, you know, if it's climbing season, maybe kind of a mixture between three and five flights if it's a really sunny day. Because the climbing flights take a little while because you're loading and unloading a lot of gear. And then uh, our duty hours, you know, go until about 10 o'clock at night. Usually we're not flying that late. And we typically fly anywhere on a sunny day from like um, four to six hours of flight time. But with all the loading and unloading and safety briefings and uh, reconfiguring the aircraft, by the time you tie it down at night and feel it, you're pretty tired. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah. 
You mentioned, well, the, the Yeti piece mentioned that you grew up flying with your dad some in a Super Cub. And Super Cub is what AOPA is restoring for its next giveaway sweepstakes. Airplane. Yeah, a uh, 1954 model, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, some of your favorite memories flying in the Super Cub and, and how you think the Super Cub performs in Alaska, perhaps in the backcountry? Well, ironically enough, my father's airplane is a restored 1954 Super Cub. Oh, same model year, wow. <laughs> yeah, same year. It's November 8050 Charlie, and it's been in our family since way before I was born, well over 40 years ago. And uh, some of my earliest memories are riding in the back seat of that uh, aircraft with my dad flying it, of course, and usually being jammed in the back with a big Malamute dog or deer. And, but Alaska went really bust in the 1980s. Uh, the economy was really bad, and my dad had to sell his share in the airplane to make ends meet. Mm. And it was leased to a lodge by the other flying partner, and it got wrecked and then kind of disappeared for a few decades. And then the pieces and parts of the airplane showed up in a hangar in Oregon, and those two had it rebuilt, and I got to fly it back to Alaska um, when I was in my mid-20s with my dad's flying partner, and it's been up here ever since. Oh. So that was about uh, eight or nine years ago now. That's and so I didn't really get to, I definitely didn't learn to fly in it, and I didn't get to fly it until it was rebuilt and brought back to Alaska. But I have a lot of hours in a Super Cub from my first air taxi job. And uh, flying the Super Cub in the backcountry, it, it's an incredible tool for the backcountry. The airplane that I personally own is a PA-22 that's been modified to have a tailwheel on it. Okay. And that thing, trying to take off or land that aircraft on, on short airstrips can be quite challenging. With the Super Cub, it seems very uh, comfortable and easy. It's such an easy plane to land at slow airspeed. Now, is the 8050 back in your family or just back in Alaska? Yes, uh, the same two partners, my father and his flying partner from many decades ago, still own the airplane together, and it lives in Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, wonderful. It's like a family member. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and most people say, you know, uh, when they have a Super Cub, they, you know, don't let it go. And I've heard different stories of them being, you know, staying in the family for multiple generations. Yeah, hopefully, uh, who knows what will happen, but hopefully I'll get to pass it on to my daughters maybe someday. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Well, uh, what got you interested in flying? Growing up in Alaska, um, you know, as I mentioned before, the roads only access a tiny part of the state, so if you want to see the rest of the state, you have to fly an airplane. So that was definitely a big impetus for learning to fly because it really opens up the rest of the country for you you'd be able to see it if you can fly. And because it's so fun. <laughs> it's really fun. And so you were a mountain guide and worked mm -hmm. on Denali for a long time as a guide, and you're also a wife and a mom. Why did you decide to make uh, flying professionally your career? Because it seemed like a fascinating way to make a decent living and still come home to my family every single night. And honestly, people laugh when I say this, but flying a single engine airplane around the mountains of the Alaska Range is a lot safer than being a mountain guide. Oh. <laughs> so it was safer, a consistent income, and I could come see my family every night. Oh, wonderful. 
What kind of specialized training did you need to be uh, working for the air taxi at Taukina? Well, as I mentioned previously, having already been a passenger on the air service for many years, I already had kind of a bit of that training out of the way, so to speak. So knowing where I was and seeing how different pilots handled the weather, the loads and the snow, and um, seeing different decision-making processes from the perspective of a passenger, I think gave me a big leg up on some of the training and decision-making that's um, taught to the newer pilot. But as far as specialized training, I think it's probably true with most air services, but um, our Czech airmen are incredible pilots and they're also quite strict with us. And so they, um, of course, every year we go through a pretty uh, strict regime of training. And of course, if you don't pass your check ride, then you don't have your job for the season. So there's <laughs> quite a bit of pressure. Mm. And then honestly, when it comes to specialized training, like say landing on the glacier, the glacier is a lot easier than the runway. There's no center line on the glacier to tell you or anyone else how far you've deviated from it. <laughs> and so, you know, um, the glacier is not without its hazards, of course, though. And so that's another thing that you learn is how to land the plane safely on the glacier and taxi around and be able to come to a stop. And then being able to estimate, you know, like taking off with, say, a big tailwind and a heavy load. It's kind of some of the specialized training that one could probably need before becoming the air taxi pilot. Then of course, typical mountain flying uh, technique, like, you know, not coming at a pass straight on, um, kind of coming at a 45 degree angle. And especially if there's a lot of mechanical turbulence, always being prepared to turn away from the pass. And we call it not uh, flopping over the pass like a dead fish, <laughs> having, an, out of, having a lot of altitude to go over the pass. And, uh, you know, so all the typical mountain flying techniques that you learn in any mountain range plus glacier operations would be the sum total of the specialized training that we need. Oh, neat. What advice would you give to aspiring pilots in flight training? I would say to stick with it and when training challenges present themselves, just uh, find another solution and move ahead. Because we all know that, you know, with your flight training, sometimes lots of hitches can occur and it's important not to get focused on those setbacks, but rather what you can do about it and uh, moving forward with your training. And then, oh, and a, a pilot mentor friend of mine said that a good pilot's always learning. So always, even though you say you've achieved your goal of getting your commercial license, but always getting another rating or you know, another certificate or just more continued training, like getting your multi-engine or learning how to fly a glider or getting your CFII, things like that. Yeah, that's it's true. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we do have quite a few members who are pilots in Alaska, but the majority of our readership um, aren't from there and, and yeah. it may be on their bucket list to go there someday or to fly there. So. For uh, all the rest of us who aren't able to live the dream every day, just kind of describe <laughs> what's it like flying in Alaska and flying around Denali? Oh, it's great. Being at the controls of an airplane over Alaska is pretty much heaven on earth for aviation because we don't have any controlled airspace and people are really aviation friendly up there. You know, people. Um, they don't complain about airplane noise and uh, the towns, a lot of them are centered around their runways, especially the towns without roads, kind of like other towns might be centered around like a railroad depot or a highway. And it's just, um, it's a really 
even to the non-aviators in Alaska, they're very accepting of aviation as a thing that happens just uh, naturally. And so flying an airplane up here is not an abnormal thing. It's a, it's a very normal thing and people are very open to it. And I found that the aviation community is very interesting and friendly up here. And we do get people, what we call airplane tourists. So people who fly their airplanes up from the lower 48 and then fly around Alaska and I think it's just, that's an incredible way to tour Alaska is to have your own airplane up here and be able to go wherever you want. I mean, you did that flying up to the Brooks Range and stuff, so you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it pretty beautiful. neat. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I got to fly into Talkeetna twice. So once I was giving a guy flight instruction from Palmer over to Talkeetna. Oh, cool. And it just seemed like a busy hive of bees there the the, the heavens were coming back because it was summer so it was the height of the the season you know and I just thought oh my gosh <laughs> yeah it is it's class echo as you know so um, there's no tower and so people really you have to maintain a high level of situational awareness as you try and enter the pattern on a sunny day in Talkeetna. Yeah, and this uh, this was a sunny day. He was needing his cross-country time, and then on the way back to Palmer, put him under the hood. But I just, all the other airfields that I've been into in Alaska, especially up north, you know, they're much quieter. But uh, Takina is busier than our two runway here in Frederick, <laughs> Maryland. Yeah, it, it, it can be. Um, it's busier than a lot of uh, towered airports that I've been to. And I worked as a CFI for several years in Talkeetna before working for the Air Service. And it was a really um, challenging thing for the students to learn how to fit into the pattern with all the air services and um, other people that were trying to land in Talkeetna because they didn't have the tower to tell them where to go. <laughs> right. And what's it like, just out of curiosity, from, you know, the taxi pilots frame of mind? Are they you know, kind of tolerant of the students or they're just like shape up and follow us and... <laughs> it used to be really bad. So I learned to fly in Talkeetna and then I was a CFI and during those years I felt like I was kind of bullied and harassed and cut off by the professional pilots um, more times than I could count. But it's actually gotten a lot better and people are way better at yielding, giving way and realizing that, you know, non-standard pattern entries are not necessarily acceptable when there's a student pilot that's um, trying to come into the pattern. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah, because typically the air taxi pilots, all the departures are from, you know, to the northwest. So the arrivals and departures are coming from the northwest and people, the air taxi pilots are good about sequencing themselves behind themselves. But when someone's trying to enter the pattern from another direction, it can be hard for them to fit into the flow of traffic, oh, especially okay. a student. Yeah. And so I feel like I try to, um, whenever I can, yield, and uh, especially to student pilots and make them feel welcome. And I try to remind the other glacier pilots that this is a public airport and <laughs> it's not just a professional <laughs> pilot's airspace. Yeah. Anyone can use it. That's a good perspective to have. Yeah. <laughs> And usually when I would send a student for their first solo, it wasn't the student's ability to fly the airplane I was worried about. It was how much traffic was in the pattern. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you again for, for talking to us. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to um, speak to you guys today. I think it's a great organization, and um, I am really flattered to have this interview. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much.
All right, David, have you uh, have you done any flying up there? No, Ian, I haven't done any flying up there, but I did recently fly over with the West Virginia and Virginia mountains, and that's, that scared me plenty right there, yeah, man. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I will say, yeah, the Appalachians, it's no joke, you know, um, flying down the spine like that to Tennessee. So, yeah, I've, I've done a little bit. I got my seaplane rating up there, and it is a blast. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's as good as you think it's going to be. So everybody should go up and, and it's really cool to see Leanne, you know, so active in the community and um, getting some publicity there for for the region and uh, for female pilots up there. So that's very cool. She's definitely a role model for female pilots. And we just, we need more more women to get out there and do those kind of things. And also Alyssa Cobb, who handled the interview, is an excellent pilot as well. And so yeah. she's a tail dragger pilot. She's got a 170. And uh, very inspirational to me as well. Yeah, very cool. All right, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app on Spotify. You can get us at the AOPA Hanger also. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.